If you're snacking on anything but tasty cake, you're making a huge Miss Cake. A fistful of chocolate-covered raisins? Miss Cake. A spoonful of peanut butter? Bigger Miss Cake. Or the worst Miss Cake of all, your kid's Halloween candy, and it's April. If it's not tasty cake, it's a Miss Cake. Because nothing satisfies like a perfectly sweet butterscotch crimpet. Or rich and creamy chocolate peanut butter candy cake. Tasty Cake. Except no substitute. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host and THR's chief TV critic, Dan Feinberg. Dan, how you holding up? I'm okay. I feel like we just recorded one of these things like the other day. Uh, I know. What's what's up with this weekly podcast thing? And also, um, goodness gracious, for a short week, why has there been so much news, Leslie? I can't even... um, yeah, I, this is where I would make a slow news week joke, but I just don't have it in me. This is like an insane volume of change and news. And there's like five or six things in headlines alone that would have made segments in a, in a, in a different week. But uh, yes, this, but here this we totally are. this totally could have been a TV's top 13. But instead, <laughs> pay close attention to the headlines. That sounds like a transition, Dan. Leading off in this week's headlines, Bel Air, the dramatic reimagining of the Fresh Prince of Bel Air and based on the viral YouTube short, has landed at Peacock with a two-season order following a bidding war. And of course, not to be confused here, which you definitely will be, HBO Max is the current streaming home for the original series. So there's that. And in other reboots with a twist news, the Dookie Hauser female-focused revival has been picked up to series at Disney+. In development news, ABC is reteaming with Kenya Barris to develop a third spinoff from Blackish, this one called Oldish, and starring Lawrence Fishburne and Jennifer Lewis. The big surprise here isn't that it's another spinoff, but that Barris himself is writing it, considering that, as we might have mentioned about 55 times in various podcasts, he remains under an overall deal with Netflix. Yeah, it's really surprising that he's writing it because you didn't you don't see Shonda still writing spinoffs of Grey's Anatomy now that she's at Netflix. So that that's some, definitely something to keep an eye on. In other development news, Girlfriends creator Mara Brock-Akil has landed an overall deal with Netflix and will develop new projects for the streamer. In casting news, Titans actor and American Idol veteran Alan Richson has been tapped to star in Amazon's Jack Reacher. He is, if nothing else, somewhere between six foot two and six foot three, which is not the same as as six foot five, but is still better than Tom Cruise. So I'm at least curious. And in one of the biggest casting shakeups in a while, Anna Ferris has exited Chuck Lorre's CBS comedy Mom ahead of its eighth season. People who watch Mom know that the show really and truly has been evolving into more and more of a true ensemble in recent years. And so this will just continue that. But miss Anna Ferris. She's very good on that show. Yeah. Sources say it had nothing to do with with filming during COVID or anything else that she was just ready to pursue other opportunities. But it I think, is definitely I, a big surprise. I think if you look at the direction that Laurie and company have taken the show in the past couple of years, I think they've been very conscious of the fact that one of those two main actresses at some point would want to do something else. I mean, Alice and Janney just won an Oscar a couple of years ago. Uh, but yeah, I, I think they have definitely been pushing the show to a place where it could survive on its own without one or the other of them. And I think it certainly can. Also, the show's been on a long time. It's closer to the ending than the beginning, regardless. 
For sure. In other news, Showtime has renewed The Shy for a fourth season, while Stars has greenlit a half-hour dramedy based on the movie Blind Spotting, featuring Jasmine Cephas Jones reprising her role from the 2018 feature. Meanwhile, Amazon had, has landed the Joe Exotic drama starring Nicolas Cage. And over at Spectrum, the cable platform has landed George and Tammy, starring Jessica Chastain as the first lady of country music, Tammy Wynette. In an interesting move, the series will air for nine months on Spectrum as an exclusive and then expand to Paramount Network and whatever CBS All Access will be called or rebranded. So, Good gracious. Why must everything be so confusing? Um, well, because they share the money. You know, an it's going to be an expensive show. Spectrum is definitely not going to absorb the full budget on that. And now you've got a, a big show with a huge actress at the center for Paramount to, to live on Paramount Network. It's basically like, look at look at what Fox is doing with, you know, airing L.A.'s finest as filler programming in the fall or in January. Right. This is the same thing, except it's baked into the deal. Right. How many people watch programming on Spectrum? Not many. And they get SVOD rights as part of it. It's a it's a good deal for all involved. Indeed. And don't forget that Manhunt Deadly Games is coming to CBS this fall also. So Spectrum is kind of serving a purpose as minor league baseball for television, which I'm sure is what they want to be thought of as. Um, <laughs> entirely unrelated, Saturday Night Live will be returning to Studio 8H for its 46th season, which will return and air live on NBC on October 3rd. And in pandemic-related news, Amazon has scrapped its Javier Bardem-led miniseries Cortez, citing production costs and challenges with remounting the series during the pandemic. The news comes as Ciro Guerra, who was supposed to have co-directed the miniseries, is facing allegations of sexual harassment and rape from eight women. He has denied the allegations and sued the outlet that reported the story for defamation. Lots going on there, Dan. And none of those were big enough stories to make our top five. Yeah, well, without that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five. Number one. Leading off, and this is a biggie, the executive ranks continued to change across Hollywood, and Netflix this week delivered perhaps the biggest bombshell in recent memory with head of originals Cindy Holland, who helped transform the company from that company that sent you DVDs in red envelopes to Hollywood's most Emmy-nominated outlet ever, is out, and that is part of a restructuring in which Bella Baharia has been promoted to the newly created role of VP of Global Television. So this is fairly big. It's really, really big. Put it in some context, please, Leslie. Yeah, so you said fairly big and really, really big. I'll go so far as to say it's massive. Of every executive in town, I think Cindy Holland was the one no one expected to go anywhere anytime soon. She was probably being groomed to be the, the heir apparent for Ted Sarandos, who was just promoted. Um, he, of course, has been chief content officer for, for some time there. He was just promoted to co-CEO. So they basically built this they built Netflix into what it is today. Cindy Holland greenlit shows like House of Cards and Orange is the New Black and really launched them into, into the scripted originals business. She helped get them into the overall deals business. She is as much in the blood of Netflix as anyone else at that company. And she's out for Bella Bataria, who is a more traditional studio executive. She came from Universal Television where she greenlit shows, including the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. And she worked on Brooklyn Nine-Nine and a whole plethora of, of others before that. She was at CBS TV studios. She is an, a well-respected industry veteran who's been at Netflix since 2016. Very savvy, 
working in roles, including content acquisitions. She is responsible for pick, for picking up Greg Berlanti thriller You from Lifetime. She picked up Insatiable, which as as much as it was a critical dog, it did really well in season one, I'm told. Uh, she's picked up shows and, and made deals for things like All American. And then she just expanded to international. So she is responsible for all non-English language originals at the company. And now she's got, it's basically you've watched this woman, Bella, rise from doing co-productions and acquisitions to global and adding those two huge tools to an already impressive skill set covering domestic television, where she's got relationships with everyone from the likes of Dick Wolf and Lauren Michaels and to, and everyone in between. She's incredibly well regarded, but at the same time, so is Cindy Holland. That's why this is such a massive surprise. Does anyone have any real sense of what actually went down here? Well, I think it's it's twofold. You know, we've we have heard that that from Netflix over um, the past couple of months and maybe even a couple of years, how much their global strategy is important. And that's not to say that domestic shows like Stranger Things are not valuable, but some of those domestic hits and, you know, we sound like a broken record here. Netflix doesn't release viewership data, but from what, everything that we've been told, their global hits have become so much more valuable because now they're crossing over into English language territories, right? How many people during the pandemic ha have watched Money Heist in the U.S.? That speaks to their strategy. These shows are cheaper to produce and often perform better from everything that we've been told. So when you're going to see more of that, that's, a, that's what's happening, where you've got a woman in Bella who can develop on a global platform where Holland came into this job really with no Rolodex and kind of built them. It didn't kind of build them. She built them into what they are today by forging relationships with the likes of Genji Cohen and David Fincher and just everyone in town, right? Shonda, Ryan, Kenya, like it's a huge, huge change at Netflix. And it also just speaks to their culture too, that they're willing to cut employees if this is either not the direction of the company or, or if they don't pass the keeper test, not that we don't, we know that, that that's what happened. But, you know, we also hear that, that, you know, the way that Bella arrived um, at, at Netflix was a was very different. You know, she and Cindy got to know each other from Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. And in an, a very interesting move, when Bella joined the company in 2016, she reported directly to Ted Sarandos and not to Cindy Holland. That was a huge move. And when you see someone like Channing Dungey, for example, the former ABC Entertainment president, when she joined, she reported to Holland. So it's very, very curious. So, you know, we've heard rumors that there was some com competition there. But yeah, this is the biggest change in the executive ecosystem. And there have been a lot of those changes lately. So and several of those changes were also just sort of rolling up into this one segment. So uh, tell the kids about what happened at NBC Universal, because when last we talked, they were still looking for an entertainment programming executive to top things. Who'd they find? Well, they found Warner Brothers television co-president Susan Rovner. And of course, I should note off the bat that NBC Universal has yet to confirm her uh, um, her hiring there. She did, however, this week announce and send a memo to staff and say that she was officially leaving Warner Brothers TV in early October. So expect a formal announcement to come from NBCU 
um, in, in early October paired with her official exit there. So that's a big deal, right? So you're, you're seeing a studio exec go from being a seller of content over to NBC Universal, where she, she will be a buyer. And from a lot of different people are, are saying that it kind of speaks to this moment in our landscape where executives would much rather be charged with buying and figuring out what content they want than having to go sell and make deals. And it's, it's very competitive right now. And, and, and the other piece of it is, is that a lot of people and a lot of studios and Warner Brothers is still kind of technically an indie studio and in that they don't ne necessarily have their own broadcast network, but that's not no longer the only game in town, right? So, you know, everyone wants to buy from their own companies. So you've got your own studio who now, of course, this is the other piece of this. Everyone wants to buy from their own studios. And that's the other piece of the NBCU news is that Bonnie Hammer, the 30 year company veteran, has been elevated to a role of vice chairman overseeing company CEO Jeff Shell in her place. Universal Television president Perlina Igbakwe, who coincidentally replaced Bella when Bella was forced out in 2016. <laughs> Perlina is now running Universal Television, Universal Content Productions, and the uh, and NBCU's international studios. That is one huge job. So you're going to have to you're going to start to see Perlina and Susan Rovner going from semi rivals as studio heads to now working together. So and it's a big deal too because you, you're seeing NBCU continue to promote women, which is a really impressive thing. And we'd heard, you know, and and said for a couple of weeks on this show that. NBCU made it a priority. They wanted to hire a woman for the entertainment programming job, and they ideally they wanted a person of color. Perlina turned down that job. Bella at Netflix turned down the job, which also may have played a role in the, the rate with which she was elevated at Netflix. So there's a lot going on in this space. There is. And if you're if you've followed everything that Leslie just said, then you obviously understand how much this really and truly is a game of musical chairs. Every time someone moves into one place, that means that there's a vacancy somewhere else. And so the last kind of domino or empty chairs here would be over at Warner Brothers Television. So where did things stand there? Yeah, they need help. Um, you know, Peter Roth still has a year left on his deal. Everything that, you know, my sources were saying is that this was the, the final, going to be the final year in his deal. His retirement was going to be imminent, but he wasn't ready to go. Susan Rovner didn't want to wait. She got this offer and basically came, came in and from everything that I understand said, I have this offer to run all of these different platforms at NBCU. What are you going to do? And Warner Brothers and Peter Roth was like, I'm not ready to go. So Susan Rovner was groomed as the, the heir apparent to Peter Roth, much in the same way that Cindy Holland was expected to be the heir apparent to Ted Sarandos. And in the same way that Perlina Igbakwe was and wound up being the heir apparent to Bonnie Hammer. So what's Warner Brothers going to do? Well, there's a lot of execs out, out there who are suddenly available. And uh, the bigger question is, is, is Peter Roth ready to go? And everything that I'm hearing is no. Okay, so that was our big topic this week, but our next topic in a different week certainly could have been the number one story. Up next, it's the end of an era at both AMC and E. Number two. I am stunned. Both of these news pieces could have been their own topics, Dan, and both of them shouldn't be understated in the fact that we're combining them into, into one segment this week. But The Walking Dead, the, the franchise, the multi-billion dollar franchise is ending at AMC. And guess what? Over at E, it's, the, uh, it's a similar story. Keeping up with the Kardashians is also ending its run. It's a, both of these are huge deals. I'm going to start first at AMC, which this week announced that the flagship Walking Dead series will end with a supersized 11th season. They've added a bunch of episodes to that. It'll now stretch out over 24 episodes and wrap in 2022. 
and it will be followed by a spinoff, which has been picked up straight to series starring Norman Reedus and Melissa McBride reprising their roles as fan favorites, Daryl and Carol. And if they really, this should be a half hour comedy called the the Carol and Daryl show, because I would watch the hell out of that. Anyway, that spinoff will air in 2023. Meanwhile, content chief Scott M. Gimple is also readying an episodic anthology that remains in development. Yeah. And then you've got E. I mean, what do you want to do, Dan? You want to talk about Walking Dead here for a minute and then we can jump into the Kardashians? Yeah, let's let's start with uh, with Walking Dead and sort of just giving a sense of what the I guess what the franchise is at this point and and so why this was the right time to end this show, but also why a spinoff was the right option. Well, from everything I understand, this has been a plan that has been in the works for some time, um, a couple of years, as I understand it. And the idea is, look, this is a show that's in its 11th season, as we've discussed on 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 the show before. Programming gets more expensive the older it gets. So a show in its 11th season is not cheap to make. You've also got the the law of diminishing returns where ratings for The Walking Dead are nowhere near the record-breaking numbers that it used to get in its early days. You've also got rising costs for the cast members. And the other piece of this, too, is way back in season one, the show was set up internationally and sold to Fox International Channels. So that means that Fox is already, they've already made their money on the international sale. I don't think that they got the money that they were expecting for what this show turned out to be. The other piece of it is, is that Netflix already has SVOD rights to the, to the flagship. So those are the two most valuable play, two of the three most valuable components in any show. The third piece is advertising. And as we've noted, the ratings are not what they once were and the show had escalating costs. So if you do the math equation, this feels like high school algebra here. If you do the math, it doesn't really add up. So the idea of ending the show and launching a spinoff with, with two other well-known stars, AKA a continuation of the series. I don't know. It's probably, it's definitely cheaper for them to do, even though Redis and McBride are very well paid. They inked franchise deals um, a couple of years ago, which should have been the first tip of the hat of what was coming. So you've got a show now in the Carol and Daryl show, which it's not called that, but it should be where AMC can sell it internationally now with two baked in stars, and then they can sell streaming rights to it. So that's 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 money in the bank, as they say. So and then the other thing I want to mention, too, is adding the extra episodes on to, to season 11. You've got a 24 episode season instead of the traditional 16. And then don't forget, they added six more episodes to the current season 10. So you've got 30 more episodes of the show to, to, that will wrap in 2022. But the idea of tacking on these episodes onto the end of these current seasons means you don't have to pay the cast more. So it keeps the, the cat, it keeps the salaries the same. And the, for the cast, the crew, the writers, everybody, everyone holds at the same rate per season, unless it was already negotiated in season 11. So, or season and, 10. and none of this even gets to the still pending expected, whatever Rick centric feature films that are on the horizon. So right. It's you not- have three feature films starring Andrew Lincoln. You have the walking dead. I think it's, what is it? The world beyond that was, you know, originally developed as an ongoing series and now it's called a, a two season event series because, well, we've heard it's terrible. And then you've got Fear of the Walking Dead, which is in, in I've lost track. I mean, eighth season, I think. Yeah, it's a look either the, the, the flagship itself is a billion dollar show. The franchise it, itself, multi-billion dollar show. This is a v- extremely valuable property. And once again, it points to where AMC is at this current moment where they have 
you know, they have Better Call Saul ending whenever they can actually make the next season. And so a lot of the established pieces of the brand either no longer will be there or are splitting off into different things. So it's kind of a this allows them to say that they're basically reformatting without entirely rebooting the brand. And I think that that's obviously a big deal. They want to they want to at least be able to say, yes, we are still the home of 75 different variations on Walking Dead, if not the mothership. Also, this is several years in the future, 24 more episodes of Walking Dead to come. So 30, Dan, 30. 30 oh, good God. OK, yeah, that's <laughs> that's that's ex like how how on earth are we supposed to get nostalgic and sad about saying goodbye when there's that much of the show left? And yet here we are. <laughs> There, here we are indeed. Well, speaking of things in the future, over at E, Keeping Up with the Kardashians will conclude its run after 21 seasons over 14 years with more spinoffs than I can even count. The NBC Universal-owned cable network will not have any additional spinoffs or series featuring the famous family after the series ends next year. So that's another like massive announcement. They can say that if they want to say that. <laughs> right. Of course, like everyone has has the ability to change their minds. But, you know, this is you want to speak about another multi-billion dollar franchise. I mean, the, you know, this is it. So in a typical week, the Kardashians ending would be the biggest story of the week. The fact that that it's like buried somewhere between like, you know, 20 and 30 this week, looking at the news cycle just in, in, in our TV world is astounding. So. The other piece that I want to talk about, too, is the ratings for this show are I mean, the ratings for everything right now are bad. But the Kardashians, it's like they're, they're generating maybe a million viewers an episode uh, or, or so. Our, our great ratings expert Rick Porter tells us, well, the family members don't need the show to sell their stuff. You know, they each have over like 10 million followers on their social handles. So what what does it serve? Right. You know. Everything that I understand is that the family was just ready to to be done. Like they don't need the show to sell the products and to 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 market whatever they're 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 pushing. They're ready for privacy. They can turn the they can kick the cameras out of their house. Like they don't need it anymore. And the money that they were making from it could not be that much, as I understand it. I'm gonna say that whatever they're actually gonna do when this is over. Privacy is unlikely to be a top concern for anyone <laughs> with the last name Kardashian. That's just my hunch, but. It is still reflective of the changing landscape is is their brand is so solidified and so at this point unimpacted by this TV show that good Lord, 21 seasons, that's. That's a lot. Um, I think it's very interesting to look at it in the context of what's happening at E just in general, because E also just ended uh, the E! News franchise, which, you know, was as central a piece of their brand as they had. So at a certain point, if the Kardashians are gone and E! News is gone, what is E? And I don't know that I know what the answer is to that. And I don't I mean, know if you do. <laughs> I mean, I do. They, you know, they they still have a bunch of different franchises. Well, nothing nearly uh, close to what the Kardashians represented for them. So, uh, you know, I I understand as I understand it, keeping up with the Kardashians was a loss leader for them. And 
basically they used it as as a calling card, right? We're the home of the Kardashians. And then they used the show to help launch others. So Botched, I'm told, is a big show for them. They still have um, things including uh, the upcoming show, The Bradshaw Bunch with Terry Bradshaw and his family. They've got Total Bellows, which is a big show. Um, they will have live events and still have red carpets. They're doing, don't forget, they're doing, um, an Emmy's red carpet virtually. Oh, yeah. So it'll be interesting to, to see. They have a development slate that's coming. I, I'm told that, you know, that they, that, that has some stuff that will be of interest, I think. And, um, the other piece is too, you know, I know everyone is probably th- listening to this thinking, oh, it's a cash grab. Like they're going to go sign with Netflix. It's not going to be that easy. E still controls the rights to the, to the show. So anything that the family wants to do for another outlet is going to have to be significantly different than keeping up with the Kardashians. And by the way, if they wanted to come back to E in a year and, and say, you know what, we changed our minds or in two years after the show ends, it's run next year. If they come back, they still have a pre-existing deal that they're going to have to be locked into unless they unless one of the terms is, hey, we want to come back, but you have to crack open this deal you know, and we want to get paid a fair market value for streaming rights to the show, which, by the way, sold to Peacock. So chances are that a contract from, God, uh, 15 years ago probably didn't have great clauses for streaming deals because that definitely was not the landscape 14 years ago. So very interesting. So lots going on with both of these franchises. Number three. Up third. FX CEO John Landgraf, a.k.a. the mayor of television, became the rare exec this week to address the press corps during a Zoom presentation focused around the cable network's inclusion strides and return to production. Dan, I was covering all the exec news and missed almost all of this. What were your big takeaways and what was the the whole thing? How did it go? Well, uh, lots of the cable networks, various cable entities and streamers and all of that have been doing these virtual, very much not TCA, but TCA adjacent or parallel uh, Zoom and other various thing panels. And so FX did this earlier this week. Um, However, John Langraff is the first executive to actually want to do an executive session with us. And that's because he likes talking to the press, darn it. He likes bringing out a PowerPoint uh, presentation. He likes giving charts and graphics and percentages. This is what that man lives for. And bless him, you can check out uh, our brief chat with him from back in January, about 150 years ago, where he was giving his basic sense of what the FX on Hulu and evolving strategy with the company is under Disney rule. And that was a lot of what he talked about in his conversation, because obviously they're feeling very good about the deal as of right now. And he probably wouldn't tell us if they weren't. But he went through a lot of different charts and graphics talking about the curation of FX and FX on Hulu and how they're basically and he likes saying this also not playing the same game as Netflix is. And that is unquestionably true. He led by talking about inclusivity initiatives. And one of the biggest things that he talked about was that when they initially decided that they had to do better, which was a thing that they made a big deal about and gave a lot of credit to uh, Mo Ryan's reporting on the subject. And uh, John Langraff likes crediting her for that. Uh, they made a story. big Oh, it was a great story. And, and, and an actual story that tangibly changed the industry. So, I mean, you, you don't get better than that. Uh, 
But when he started responding to that article and responding to the failures that he felt like net, like FX was exhibiting, he kind of ruled um, basically everyone other than white men into a single bundle. It was, OK, we're going to reach 50 50 parity with women, people of color, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, he wanted to emphasize this time around that they're breaking out women and writers, directors, actors of color. And he talked about the progress that they've made, which is is evident and obvious. I think if you look at a lot of their showrunner initiatives, probably there are still over indexed numbers of white male showrunners. But yeah, I he, think they only have two female showrunners on their scripted stuff. Right. Pamela Adlon and the woman running Why the Last Man, who, of course, is the, the new showrunner. Uh, yeah, so he he talked about that and he talked about that as obviously a thing that requires change and evolution. And it does. And the, the thing about John Landgraf is that, you know, that whatever he says, it's going to get followed up on to some degree. And not everyone, not every executive in town can you say that. And also not every executive in town can you guarantee that six months from now they'll still be around to answer questions about it. So he, he talked about the charts and they're they're going for the most part all in the right direction. A lot of what I was most interested in was him discussing where the FX brand is. And I asked him a question that related to the idea that at this point, more and more people know kind of where or how they're watching the shows than what and who is producing them. And so I've had conversations with people who thought that what we do in the shadows was a Hulu show or that Mrs. America was a Hulu show as opposed to an FX or FX on Hulu show. And he professed confidence that this was both an evolving thing, but he also admitted that he had had similar conversations where people were maybe losing track. And it it became a conversation about kind of the gap between brands and how people are watching things. And so Netflix gets to be both of them. Netflix is both a how you watch something and a what you watch. And at this moment, maybe FX and FX on Hulu, there's more of a separation where people maybe think about certain things in terms of how they're watching them on Hulu versus what it is, FX, and maybe the need to emphasize the latter. It was still it was an it was an interesting presentation. It was a good presentation because no one else has updated us on the state of things since COVID, obviously. And he talked about a lot of the shows that are getting ready to resume production. He talked about how Atlanta, they've been able to use this time to fully write the third and fourth seasons of Atlanta, which is a good piece of news. On the other hand, they're not going to begin production on the show again until next year. So that means that we're not going to see a new season of Atlanta any time in the near future. But on the other hand, the fact that they have all the episodes written is progress, and it means that they'll be able to still shoot it back to back, which was always their plan. He he mentioned that at least one episode of the upcoming seasons is filmed entirely in Europe. So that's fun, uh, though. Like everything else these days, it brings with it its own series of logistical hurdles. So, yeah, that was that was the update is is things are getting back to work slowly. He talked about the speed with which they were able to finish the Fargo season, which, of course, had been interrupted with two episodes still to go. And basically they had 
21 days of shooting remaining. And what they did was they doubled up on production and they had two different episodes shooting at the same time with two different crews. And yeah, they were that, able to. Yeah. Yeah, that's not not uncommon, but um, in, in television, but it is uncommon on a show like Fargo. Yeah. It, and it would certainly not be the kind of thing that normally an FX would do they're they make everything bespoke everything is artisanal and so the fact that they have to in some cases now be trying to figure out what the i don't know what the, for for want of a better word what the practical way to do this is as opposed to necessarily the most artistically advantageous i assume that that's what noah hawley is yelling at people to make sure actually still happens during reshoots on this, but it doesn't change the fact that there are all of these considerations that have absolutely nothing to do with what is the best show we can make at this point. They have to do with how are we going to make our days and keep people alive? And that's what everybody is going to have to deal with. So, yeah, these were the yeah. things he talked about, and it was very interesting. Yeah. And, you know, it's worth noting, too, that FX has never been a network that has wanted to rush anything to air. I mean, look at how long some of these things are in development for before they even get picked up to series because they want to make sure they have the scripts right or they have the direction of the show right. And then filming can take lo a long time because they want to make sure that the pilot is right or they go back for reshoots. And, that you know, like this is a very deliberately run network and very well curated one at, at that, too. So and definitely again, interesting to see what happens. That's the distinction that they make with what Netflix does, where Netflix is absolutely in the prestige game. The Emmy nominations point to that. So there is no arguing with that. But they are also in the volume game. So they're in both of those games. And you can be in both of those games if you have the production budget that Netflix has, which no one else has. But uh yeah, so it was it was good to get an update. It was it was enlightening to get an update and uh yeah, so it will be good to get Atlanta, even if we don't get Atlanta again until 2022, maybe. Who knows? All I know is when Why the Last Man finally makes it on air, I will be very excited because it's been in development there. I've lost track. Five years, six years. It's been in development there forever. Uh, and we we did not get enough time in the Q&A to get a an answer on when the the last man came back into the title and why, after multiple conversations where John Landgraf told us they felt perfectly good about just calling it why they have returned to its actual title. But maybe we'll get another chance because guess what? It's not like why the last man is coming to TV anytime soon. We'll We'll get many more chances to ask questions about it. <laughs> Up next is our showrunner spotlight segment. Number four. This week, we're hitting the rewind button a bit and are joined by Kathleen Jordan, the creator of Netflix's Teenage Bounty Hunters, which launched August 14th on the streamer. The teenage action comedy is her first as a creator and counts Orange is the New Black showrunner Genji Kohan among its executive producers. Welcome to the podcast, Kathleen. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Leslie and Dan. So just getting started here, you know, you worked with Genji Kohan on Lifetime's American Princess. Is that how the show came together? Walk us through it. Yes. I, um, I submitted to write and just to staff on that show. Um, and I submitted what was called at the time, slutty teenage bounty hunters, my spec script. Um, and I got the craziest email of my life back, which was that I was, uh, they wanted to meet me for staffing. And Genji was also asked what's going on with this script. And I said, Oh, Nothing. Nothing's going on with this script at all. Um, and so, yeah, we um, I was very lucky to both staff on that show and then also um, 
work with Genji and her producing partner, Tara Herman, to develop it a bit. And then, yeah, we pitched it to Netflix and sold it and made it. So then where did the idea for the show actually originate if you already had had the whole script done and in your pocket as a writing sample? Uh, well, I grew up from this, in the South um, in a very uh, sexually repressed, religious, conservative community. Um, and I wanted to write a show primarily about female friendship and female um, sexuality and empowerment and um, felt like the South is a really... Um, is a really right place to explore some of that, some of those, um, issues and, uh, repression, like I said. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, well, I knew I wanted to write about teens. I knew I wanted to write about, um, about sex and I knew I, uh, wanted to have some sort of fun procedural crazy element to it. My manager gives, gave this advice to me and to my one of my best friends, Justin Shipley, who created uh, Wrecked with his brother, um, they both, he said to both of us, write the craziest, most unproducible script possible, write something that no one would ever make. Um, and so we both did that and we, <laughs> we both sold them. So that's pretty good, pretty good advice. Well, obviously the title slutty teenage bounty hunters would be a attention grabbing title. When you title your script that, do you assume that there's any chance you're going to be able to make the show with that title? And how close did you actually come to getting it on air with the slutty part of the title intact? I mean, it was announced in development as or when it was picked up the series as slutty teenage bounty hunters. It was. So you and got pretty I, far. That was that was my it was our intention for that to be the title of the show going into the world. Um, I certainly wrote that title in order f for people to turn to the next page and read me. I just was so desperate to write for television um, and um, was shocked that someone actually wanted to make it. That was that was never <laughs> that was never the intention. And I'm so pleased that I got the opportunity to do that, especially with Genji and Tara. But um, we got pretty it got pretty far. It was announced, like like Leslie said, as Slutty Teenage Bounty Hunters. And um, we ultimately, once we made the show, um, we realized that we were digging into a lot of other kind of meatier topics besides teen sexuality. And that the show, we felt like that title would kind of mislead the audience about exactly where our, you know, thesis statement lies with the show. Um, and that it was, you know, Teenage Bounty Hunters is already a ridiculous title all, you know, on its own. Uh, so it, it made more sense to kind of position it that way. Were there alt titles just in case even that was too ridiculous? What, what was the, what was the follow the fallback title? If this hadn't gone, there were more ridiculous titles. We tried to replace slutty, um, and we couldn't do it. We got pretty close to sex positive teenage bounty hunters. Um, that was, <laughs> that was Genji's favorite. And, um, it's a that's a real mouthful. Um, yeah, it just anything, any other kind of modifier ended up feeling like it was a little bit undercutting what we were doing and that we'd rather people kind of discover some of those surprises along the way. But yes, sex positive teenage bounty hunters was, was the closest runner up. So when you use this as a writing spec, I'm curious, how many other people did you send this script to? before you got hired on American Princess, before it got made, like, did did other people see this writing sample and just pass on it and just say, oh, that's a good thing, but it'll never, you know, like, or like, or was this, or was Genji the first to actually see it and say, there's something here? No, this, this was a, this was my, um, 
with my representation, it was kind of my uh, introduction to the town. Uh, so I had a ton of generals, um, you know, and staffing meetings and things based off based off of people reading and liking the the writing. Um, but everyone was kind of like, uh, obviously, we would never actually make this sh- this show's ridiculous. <laughs> um, but we love you and we like your writing and we'd love to meet you and talk about other things. And and so I got some other writing work as a result of this as just being this kind of crazy sample because there's um, uh, year, years ago, Liz Merriweather had a, um, a spec called Sluts. And, um, I'd heard about that and I was like, okay, that's a smart, that's a smart idea. It's a crazy show. No one's ever going to make it, but the, the writing is so good. Um, so just get people's attention. So that's what I, that's what I tried to do. Well, what were the reasons that they would tell you, obviously we're not going to make it. It doesn't seem that out there ultimately once you actually see what it is. You know, when you go to a general, I, you're in, especially if you aren't, anybody and no one cares who you are you're not in a position to ask (laughs) to ask questions and have leverage like come on tell me why you're not going to make it I'd be like oh yeah of course of course I'm an idiot I'm stupid right 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 of course of course this is a bad script but yeah 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 um so yeah people did it I wouldn't I wouldn't have had the gall to ask uh what are your business reasons for not making this uh this show uh because I didn't have any didn't have any leverage or like to stand on just glad to be there drinking the free water. <laughs> so now before this, you cut your teeth on a lot of unscripted shows. So how did things yes. like American Gypsies and Groomer's Pet and Hack My Life help you refine your oh, skill set? Thank you for crediting me to those great things. Um, yeah, IMDb I, can be forever if you don't erase it. <laughs> it's true. There's nothing I can do about it now. Um, you know, I um, I mostly worked in unscripted development. And so... Um, I would, it's, it kind of uniquely prepared me for the job of show running because I um, have a little bit of familiarity with every single job on set because I have done every single job on set because when you do reality TV, someone gives you $30,000 and sends you into the woods for a week and you come back with a pilot presentation and it's you, you're holding the boom and you're you know, writing the lines and doing everything. So, um, you know, it was a shock once I started working in things that had actual budgets and I'm like, I'm like, wait, who's writing the, the call sheet? And it's like that, not you, <laughs> you're not writing the call sheet. Um, so those, yeah, all of that stuff kind of, it, especially with the post process, I've spent so much time, um, in post and, uh, overseeing edits and, and things like that. So it made me, it made me a lot more confident in the areas that, um, that I think a lot of people who just come up, you know, on a, on a strict writing track don't have as much experience with. Now, with a project like this, how much actual research goes into figuring out the logistics of what it would take for a pair of 16-year-old girls to work as even apprentice bounty hunters? Or is this the kind of thing sure. where you don't want to dig too deep because you might find out it's not actually possible? <laughs> yeah, you might. There might be a slight suspension of disbelief <laughs> um, in the context of uh, the, you know, the idea for this show. Um, yeah, you'd have to be 18 to be a, an, um, a bail a bail bondage agent, a, a bounty hunter. Um, but yeah, we, no, we did research. We wanted to make sure that, um, we wanted to make sure that bounty hunters <laughs> could watch it, but that wasn't our key demographic. Um, we wanted to just make it, but kind of, uh, feel like a real job because it is, I mean, you know, it is a real job and, uh, Kadeem wanted to like be able to dig his teeth into kind of the reality of what a day to day, 
um, what day to day is like for somebody who is a bounty hunter. <laughs> so, so now you mentioned um, Kadeem, that being Kadeem uh, Hardison, of course, who starred as everyone's uh, beloved Dwayne Wade on A Different World, the Cosby Show spinoff, which I am have very vivid memories of watching and loving as a kid. But can you talk a little bit about bringing him in and bringing him in in, in, in a role that, that's so different from what we've really seen him in? And, you know, it, it like it was one of those things where it's like, you know, you kind of, you know, wipe your eyes. and You're like, wait, is that from? Yeah, yeah that's him. <laughs> it's one yes. of those moments. He um, he was we we saw a lot of people um, just in the in the process of um, auditioning for the show. Um, and he came in for the, the role of Bowser and he was Bowser just coming in his like physically, um, he was wearing these like crazy, like motorcycle boots. He like had just like driven in from the Canyon. Like he's a badass. He is so he's, there are a lot of differences obviously between him and his character, but, um, he really kind of embodied, uh, this attitude that we didn't even really know we were looking for. So, um, He's his audition. He had this, <laughs> he brought this energy of like complete exhaustion and exasperation with these two really annoying teenagers. Um, and no one else had done that. And it was, um, it was brilliant. He like kind of clinched it right. Um, as soon as we, so he started to speak, but, um, yeah, it was a, a complete pleasure and joy working with, um, somebody as talented and experienced as him. He, he brought a lot of gravitas and kind of like weight to the show and, um, also was a huge, help to Angelica and Maddie, um, as kind of greener actors on set and learning kind of the ropes and teaching them, you know, how to, how to do the job. The show so much hinges on those two main characters and you have a pair of relative unknowns in those roles. What was the casting process like, and what was the chemistry you wanted to make sure you got between those actresses? Especially because they're playing twins, right? They're playing twins. And so, you know, obviously we were looking for two separate people with two separate specific energies, but we were really more casting a dynamic. Um, the chemistry read was so much more important to us than the individual auditions because there, we just had needed some kind of alchemy where there's the, that their energies are, you know, lifting each other up and also grounding each other. Um, so we had, we've saw a lot of people, saw a lot of different combinations of people. And when Maddie and Angelica, play together for the first time and we saw them do a scene, it was magic. Their, their chemistry is undeniable and they have this, I mean, there's a thing in the show for those who haven't seen it, but, uh, they, they speak, we call it, um, we call it twin vision where they, um, speak to each other kind of telepathically as twins. And they almost already had that. And that the night that they, the day they met, they, they went out to dinner with all the different people. There's a million different combinations of people that we saw. Those two women went out to dinner together because they fell so in love with each other and they saved each other as sister in each other's phones, which was very cute. Um, and then it ended up being the combo. So it was, it was perfect. Yeah. It gives me, it, it, they both give me serious Buffy vibes. I mean, the show itself gives me big Buffy vibes. So which, huge, you know, for me, a it's a compliment because that's, that's my, one of my favorite shows. Huge compliment. Thank you. Yes, they um, the, I, I don't they are too young to have seen the show, you know, to have seen it when it was coming out, uh, which is de extremely depressing. Oh, that hurts. <laughs> that hurts so hard. <laughs> um, but have they but, seen it now? You know, I actually don't know. I should text them and ask. I, I, I hope so. They need to see it. It's a, it's it's a very important 
part of television. And you mentioned that you come from a religious background yourself, and and that's kind of the biggest tightrope that this series has to walk, because you're on one hand satirizing fundamentalism, but there's also still a respectful side to it. What were the complications of finding the tone you wanted to strike there? Yeah, well, I, um, you know, yes, I come from a, I come from a really religious community, this super buttoned up community called Buckhead, and it, it's um, in the middle of Atlanta. Um, and I grew up in a really democratic home. My dad was a democratic politician, and um, he was President Carter's chief of staff. And so, like, I had a lot of politics were a big part of my life, but um, all of my friends were Republicans, and all of my friends were, um, you know, Methodist or Baptist or um, Presbyterian, and I was an atheist and listening to uh, Black Sabbath and Nine Inch Nails when I was in like third grade. So I that was a different <laughs> Blair is a little bit based off of my own experience of kind of being in the ideological minority. Um, but yeah, the the religion I think that's something that I've learned just from moving to you know living in New York and um, living in Los Angeles is that. Like I said, there's there is value in being in, a, in the ideological minority, and you you grow a lot of empathy um, for people that think differently from you. And so I noticed the kind of coastal idea about you know just kind of looking down on religion. And while I myself am not religious, so many people in my life are, um, and the vast majority of the country is religious. Uh, that's just true. And we there aren't a lot of kind of textured, nuanced explorations of. Christianity in the media. Um, and it feels like a missed, I felt like a missed opportunity to me. So yes, I did. We didn't, we didn't want to punch down or we also didn't want to, you know, pull any punches. So it was, it was kind of a, yeah, it was a balancing act, but we have, a, we had a Christian writer in the room that was important to me as far as diversity goes to kind of check ourselves on what exactly are we saying with this joke or what exactly are we saying with the scene? How do we ground this in a more, uh, yeah, a more nuanced depiction of what it's really like to be sexual and be a Christian. Now, this is a show that that certainly could be taken as escapist fun, but it premiered at a time in which it became, I would say, probably more topical than you could have imagined or intended with, you know, the Confederate monuments being taken down, but also the protests about Richard Brooks and Ahmaud Arbery. Have you had the chance to reflect on the way it has played differently in this moment from the way that you maybe initially had it in your head? Yes, absolutely. We've given a lot of uh we've, you know, been having a lot of creative conversations about what, you know, where we were and where we can go. Um, we, something that has been really important to me and to the, to the writer's room and the producers is that we just had no intention of sanitizing the South. There's a lot of teen shows and shows that are geared towards younger audiences that are that, you know, the, the cast is, is always a rainbow. It's completely representative and it's kind of an aspirational world. And while that's so wonderful and there's obviously such a necessary space for that, that wasn't our intention. We wanted to reflect a version of the world that we feel like is really there. Um, and so, yeah, with the Confederate statues, that was, <laughs> we had, we have an episode about, uh, skip, uh, beheading Confederate statues. We certainly didn't predict that, um, that that would be so relevant, but, um, I'm proud that we went there. Um, I think that moving forward with the show, I think it's incumbent upon us as creatives to ask ourselves what, what, how are we contributing to the conversation about, um, 
about the criminal justice system and the, you know, uh, the fact that bounty hunting is obviously part and parcel of, of a, of a larger criminal problem here that we, we, the way that we deal, the way that we deal with, um, with criminal justice in this country is obviously, uh, ripe for a change. Um, and so, uh, we intend if we, if we get the opportunity to do a second season, um, to really explore, uh, what it means for Bowser, Kadeem Hardison's character to be a, a version of a black cop. Well, as you looked back at the show you'd made, were there any points at which you said, OK, in retrospect, maybe we wouldn't have done it this way. Maybe we wouldn't have found this funny. We would have found it serious or or, you know, was it the show you made and now you'll change it and adjust it going forward as your mind changes? Um, yeah, no, I, I feel I feel good about um, I feel good about the issues that we touched on and the ways that we portrayed them. I think that it's it's our, it's our job to listen and react, um, as artists. And so I, that would be our intention moving forward is just to, to keep our ears open and to always make diversity an important part of, um, of our, you know, creative process so that we were getting a lot of different points of view, racially, sexually, all of those, all of those things make a big difference, obviously. And the, the, um, the tone of the product that you make. Now, now you mentioned, you know, a season two have you started writing it have you pitched it to netflix and i mean when you obviously with with the show like this that started as a spec now that you've been with it for some time have you given a thought to how many seasons that you have in mind like what did you pitch to them and what what, yeah. what do you see as the future for the show yeah we don't we don't know about a season two yet but we have um but we've started having conversations about kind of the creative ways that we'd like to go uh with it in the future and um yeah. I mean, we have 25 year old girls playing 16 year olds. So put on your eye cream. Uh, <laughs> we'll see. How, we'll see how long the, the world can believe that. Uh, but um, yeah, yeah, I mean, no, I think... Netflix is familiar with that with Stranger Things. Right. Yes. So, yeah, I'm, I'm of course joking. I, I they 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 pull it off. They do a great job. And uh, I don't have any you know, I don't have any concern, <laughs> concerns about the girls skincare regimens. But uh, <laughs> I do think that. Um, yeah, I think that there's a lot there are a lot more stories to be told. And I think that. Um, yeah, we've in conversations, kind of in preliminary conversations about where our season two would go. And I think that um, the show is about two privileged white girls um, intersecting with parts of the world that they would never um, they would never intersect with if they weren't in the in the professional position that they're in. So that's certainly um, white white privileges and just privilege in general is something that we definitely would want to explore as a theme. And, and do you have an idea of, of how many seasons you'd like to see this go? Like how far out have you thought about? I'd love to make as many as they'll let me. Well, so okay. like 70, 80. No, I, 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 you know, I think you only couldn't uh, be in high school for so long. Uh, so I think we'll see. They are teenage bounty hunters uh, and not early 20s bounty hunters. Right. It becomes a completely different show. At that exact, point. Exactly. Teen, you know, it's bounty hunters, the college years, right? Exactly. Like, I'm not so interested in seeing them, like, choosing between, like, Vassar and, like, Vanderbilt or whatever. But um, <laughs> but we'll see. Now, the first season, and without spoiling it, because we're going to assume lots of people haven't seen it yet, the first season does end with a pretty big twist slash cliffhanger. Was that baked into your pitch from the beginning? Yes. Uh, when I when I. Have, first came into me, Genji and Tara. I um, I pitched them in that meeting the twist at the end of the season, um, 
uh, especially knowing, I mean, I, the kinds of shows that I like to watch are, uh, have, have lots of twists and turns. And so I, that was something that was interesting to me and certainly a part of the DNA of the show. Um, but also knowing that, uh, it would be, we would be pitching it to Netflix only, um, and it being a, you know, a stream, a place that we're streaming and cliffhangers are, you know, important to, how they do business. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to kind of secure our fate. And Netflix obviously does not give ratings, so you don't necessarily know exactly how many people are watching the show. But what sort of sense have you been able to get just from social media and the ether of people discovering the show and finding its world? Yeah, they've, yeah, we don't, you know, we have, we have some initial indication of the fact that, uh, that people are enjoying the show. Um, we, um, I'm really thrilled to see it doing well internationally. Um, just from what I can glean from my own, like, poor man's research of just searching on Twitter. Um, and yeah, there's, without spoiling too much, there is a, there's a queer storyline in the second half of the season. And, um, that's really resonating. That's really resonating, uh, with, uh, like, with queer female audiences, which is really, uh, makes me really happy. I'm really proud of that. And, um, yeah. And also it's really, it's Brazilians. They love us. We don't know why. <laughs> Who knows why? But you got to love them. We love Brazil. Obrigada. And they, and they are among the most vocal audiences out there. So you definitely, when, when Brazilians are a fan of a show, you know they're out there. They really are a fan <laughs> of the show. And see, that's the thing. It's like all of this, because all of the, you know, when you don't know, you don't know. And so everything is so opaque. So you, it's all confirmation bias. So you can, if I search the show's name on Twitter and I'm positive that it's going well, then I can confirm that it's going well. And if I search the show on Twitter and I'm positive that everyone hates it, I can also confirm that too. So, uh, you know, there's no real, it's all just me spinning around in my house. Ugh, that sounds hard when you have like that. That's, I mean, has Netflix given you any kind of feedback about performance or have you gotten, you know, like the one word it's good. You're good. Don't worry. We've uh, we've gotten an, we've had an initial conversation just kind of delving into the numbers a little bit. I think, uh, you know, it's common knowledge that they've now started speaking to creators and producers, um, you know, at certain touch points um, post launch. Um, and we've gotten some some in indication that things are that things are going well. Um, you know, numbers are good and can always be better. So it's uh, at this point, it's uh, it's all very opaque. Also, you, you can give me a number and I just have no idea if that's good or bad. And they <laughs> won't tell you. So you just say, cool, thank you. And then you pretend yeah. you, you know, you pretend you know what it means. Uh, well, that sounds like a lot of uh, coverage uh, on streaming ratings. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, we always do like to end these interviews with the same question. What have you been watching and enjoying? Oh, man. You know, I've been watching I May Destroy You. The idea that I've been enjoying it, I love it, but enjoying that sitting and enjoying that show is a real, it's tough. It's tough to watch. Um, but I enjoy, <laughs> I enjoy that it has been made and that I am, I am seeing it, <laughs> but it's so upsetting that it is difficult, but it has really certainly moved me. Um, and then I'm always rewatching Frasier. I'm always rewatching Frasier. I can't help it. It's what I'm doing. It's what I'm always doing. Um, it's my favorite show. <laughs> so I'm always watching it. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Kathleen. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, you guys. Teenage Bounty Hunters is streaming now on Netflix. 
Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Among this week's major new launches are HBO's We Are Who We Are, Coastal Elites and The Third Day, and The Duchess on Netflix. Dan, what you got? There are choices this week, and it's it's my guess that not everything is going to be for everybody, and and that is that is okay. Uh, so things have been getting wildly varied reviews. For example, The Duchess on Netflix has been getting uh, I don't want to say entirely torn to shreds, but it's been getting tum- somewhat torn to shreds. And I actually I am going to say this: I like this comedy from Catherine Ryan, a Canadian-born, UK-based comic, more than some people do, which is not to say that I like it a lot, but I laughed at it a couple times. It is about a a woman who is raising a precocious uh, young daughter while avoiding the baby daddy who she hates, and she's fairly toxic, but she does everything for her daughter. It is definitely an abrasive show. I think it is an abrasive show intentionally, and I think it is an abrasive show so that it can chart the evolution of its main character. But I also completely understand why some people will not uh, want to follow that main character. I found it occasionally funny. I liked some of the performances, and by the end, it had found some heart. I would say it is definitely heart deficient for the first few episodes, and that is not ideal. Um... But to me, I found the show a lot like the other two, uh, Comedy Central and now moving to HBO Max. Right, Leslie? That's right. It takes In- a second to remember where it's going. <laughs> Indeed, uh, which is a show that a lot of people loved and that I liked but didn't love. Uh, I think I think it has some of the same sensibility and some people who like the other two will like this. Uh, but again, it is it is definitely starts in an abrasive place and. You should know that. Um, I think more people will, more critics certainly, like uh, Luca Guadagnino's um, cumbersomely titled We Are Who We Are. I forget its title, uh, but that is what its title is, which is about young people at a military base in Italy in 2016. It is very free-flowing. I would say it feels unstructured, but it's actually reasonably structured. It, It knows what it's doing, uh, but it is it is such a sense of feeling and mood and momentum to this show. And it has some very good performances by uh, Jordan Christine Seaman and uh, Jack Dylan Grazer at the center. And it, it feels like a companion piece of uh, sorts to Guadagnino's uh, Call Me By Your Name. And I, I think it will have some of the same people who love it and probably will have some of the same limitations in finding its audience. But I know that's a show that you also like. And I know you're going to say you're not a critic, but do you want to tell the kids a little bit about what you thought of it? I, I, you know, I love Call Me By Your Name. I love this show. I've seen the first four. I'm not a critic. Don't take make of this what you will. <laughs> I say this every time. But I have no idea what the show is about, but the performances are so good. I'm I'm so interested and invested in, in these kids and these characters and their exploration of sexuality and who, and independence and who they are. Plus, like the the, the Italian scenery, it, it, it it's making me long to go back there. And it's 
you know, I'm not completely sure I know what the show is about, but I know that I want to watch the rest of the episodes as soon as possible. Yeah, so. it's it's not a plot you can describe. It just kind of goes along and you you hop in and you go with the flow for an hour. And, and I think it works really very well. And I, I would say it's unquestionably the best thing premiering this week. It's being paired with the third day on HBO, which is which stars Jude Law and Naomi Harris. And it's I don't know. It's it's basically HBO's Wicker Man, which I don't think is necessarily a horrible thing, but it lets you know what it is. And that's what it is. Uh, uh, somewhat brooding, somewhat tormented man finds himself in a in a strange town, in this case, the actual island of O.C. off the coast of Essex and discovers that the residents have strange religious beliefs and interesting ceremonies. Let's just say that it's a a structurally odd show. The first three episodes are summer and they're focused on the Jude Law character. The next three episodes are winter and they focus on the Naomi Harris character. And then on October 3rd, HBO and Sky Studios, who are producing this, are doing a immersive live theatrical event that they're calling fall that brings you into the world of the island further. It is not in any way narratively necessary, but it is a it's a strange and ambitious thing. So I am curious about that. And I guess the last of the things here is Coastal Elites, which is really not necessary. It's a series of five covid themed monologues all filmed in quarantine and there are big stars here and it's fun to watch them. Uh, it, it's a lot of yelling. Bette Midler is the first segment and it, this is written by Paul Rudnick and it's basically Bette Midler yelling at you for 20 minutes. And if you can actually make it through Bette Midler yelling at you for 20 minutes with Paul Rudnick dialogue, maybe you'll be happy with the rest of it. I thought the Dan Levy section was very good. I think that actors will be using his monologue in acting classes for years to come. So that is an achievement. And the last segment with Caitlin Deaver is extremely good also because Caitlin Deaver is at this point almost always fantastic. And I look forward to seeing how people will find good uses for her in the future. And the other segments, the Issa Rae segment is so so. And the Sarah Paulson segment starts out really strong and kind of falls apart. Uh in general, it's really uneven. And God, if you can make it through Bette Midler yelling at you for 20 minutes at the beginning, you're there. So that's what's coming up this week, Leslie. Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. And that feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, The Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. We'll be back next week when we'll be joined by the creators, showrunners, and stars from Hulu's Pen15. I believe you are referring to Hulu's penis, Leslie? Sure, yep. And as a reminder, if you like us, please continue to spread the word and let The Hollywood Reporter know. Tell your friends, tweet about us, spread the word, write it up in smoke signals, you know, write it in the sky, TV's Top 5, use the hashtag, tweet at us, send us your questions. If you have questions for a future mailbag segment, email us at TV's Top 5, that's number 5, at THR.com. But for now, until next week, Dan. Until next week, Leslie.
If you're snacking on anything but tasty cake, you're making a huge Miss Cake. A fistful of chocolate-covered raisins? Miss Cake. A spoonful of peanut butter? Bigger Miss Cake. Or the worst Miss Cake of all, your kid's Halloween candy, and it's April. If it's not tasty cake, it's a Miss Cake. Because nothing satisfies like a perfectly sweet butterscotch crimpet. Or rich and creamy chocolate peanut butter candy cake. Tasty cake. Accept no substitute. 